0: The Guardian.
1: Guardian podcasts are partnered with audible.co.uk. For a free download, be sure to check out guardian.co.uk slash audible, where Guardian listeners can choose any audiobook for free. See the page for more details.
2: I'm John Plunkett, and on this week's Media Talk, it's Prime Minister's Week at the Levison Inquiry. This is a sort of, I think, a cathartic moment where press
1: politicians police all the relationships that haven't been right we have a chance to reset
2: them and that is what we must do i'm joined by the guardians head of media and tech dan Saber, and by guardian leader writer and voice of politics weekly tom clark plus we talk football as sky and bt shout out a phenomenal three billion pounds for live premier league football rights this is media talk from the guardian
0: The one we're looking at is the 7th of October 2009. It was sent by Mrs. Brooks to you, timed at 16.45 in the afternoon. The first line has been redacted because it's um, on grounds of relevance. And then she says, but seriously, which suggests that the first line contains or might contain something of a jocular nature. I, I do understand the issue with the times. Let's discuss over country supper soon. On the party, it was because I had asked a number of NI—that's obviously News International people—to Manchester post endorsement, and they were disappointed not to see you. But as always, Sam was wonderful. Brackets, and I thought it was OEs that were champ personified. Question mark close brackets. I was, I'm so rooting for you tomorrow, not just as a personal friend, but because professionally we're definitely in this together. Speech of your life? Question mark. Yes, he can exclamation mark i think that is about the sun had made this decision to back the conservatives to part
3: company with labor and uh so the sun wanted to make sure it was helping the conservative party put its best foot forward with the policies we're announcing the speech i was going to make and and all the rest of it and i think that's what uh, that's what I me mean. that's what that means
2: that was david cameron there at the lewison inquiry dan you were at the royal courts of justice what did you make of his performance
1: well, he wasn't very assured. Actually, in the morning, he certainly sort of, I think, recovered some poise in the afternoon. But he looked quite nervous when he started, and he got in terrible trouble over sort of Rebecca Brooks. He 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 was asked, sort of, in effect, how close friends they were. And of course, remember, Rebecca Brooks uh, has been charged uh, uh, on obstruction of justice. So, you know, that's an association that's looking a bit fraught for him right now. And he couldn't. He got all vague and evasive. I couldn't remember how often we met at the weekends. It was clear they met a lot. It was clear they had a lot of contact. He did remember, he did agree with what she had said earlier, that she texted him perhaps once a week. And, of course, above all, and the thing that really got us going was we saw this incredible and revealing text. Uh, uh, And that was absolutely sort of Cameron's low moment because, you know, in this sort of, in this text sent, just after actually the sun's come out for the Tories, it's a Tory party conference in Manchester, in october of 2009 and he's not turned up cameron's not turned up to the times reception because it it would appear he's cross with something he's read in the paper something like this and and what a revealing message because it talks about well you know i understand she says (laughs) about what you think about the times and let's discuss it over country supper which is clearly where they interact although cameron couldn't remember how often they met you know, not only that, she then talks in this incredibly fawny way about the speech he's about to make, presumably the speech at party conference that the, lead, that the leader makes. an incredibly fawny way, which ends with his oh, this, oh, so horrible. Yes, we can, with an exclamation mark, which just replicated, I gather, in the sun the next day, but oh, my word. And that was a really difficult moment for him, and you could see he was desperately uncomfortable.
2: And Tom, there's a bit of a pattern there, isn't there, at Leveson, that a lot of the, sort of the big moments, the big reveals come from text messages and, and emails and sort of snippets of conversations, as we saw with with Cameron and Rebecca Brooks today.
4: These situations, I mean, they're rare. A the pri- Serving Prime Minister going and, and, and talking in court like this. Someone thinks back to Tony Blair and um, Hutton. Uh, it's not a situation where the Prime Minister's likely to come out very well because it's not a situation where his authority um, is as natural as it would normally be. You know, he's having to answer someone else's questions for a very long time when he's used to being the guy who sets the... Um, Rules and then, in particular, having these kind of quite you know intimate little exchanges with um, very unpopular people laid out there. I suspect, in the end, as with Blair, it's not going to be any killer moment. You know, this text was bloody awful to be honest but it was from Rebecca Brooks it wasn't from Cameron I suspect more it's a case of uh, brand damage which is exactly what Hutton proved to be for Blair there was no killer fact but there was a whole kind of drip drip of association with things that you'd rather not be associated from and drip drips much harder to recover from um, I think so it's a kind of a a slow burn to mix metaphors um, which uh, which will sort of taint Dave slowly rather than killing him quickly
2: Dang, politicians are used to criticism, but it's, it's when they're sort of mocked and ridiculed and sort of become figures of fun almost. That's where the real danger lies. And there's a danger of that. from We had it from the that They used to sort of sign off his text to uh, Rebecca Brooks. And, and now, as you say, this text today.
1: Well, I think what's really interesting is the sort of this growth, I, I felt there's all this kind sort of off-the-books kind of politics that we've sort of seen over the last two or three years, perhaps it's a reaction to sort of FOI legislation, which is where people use private emails. Jeremy Hunt used a Gmail uh, Cameron said he doesn't even use email anymore, he said today. Basically, he uses text message again, sort of, you know, presumably sort of a personal phone, but again, a communication you wouldn't ordinarily get access to. And very revealingly, at one point, he was asked why he didn't disclose the December 23rd um, dinner and party he had with... um uh, with Rebecca Brooks over in Oxfordshire and James Murdoch where James Murdoch was also present and he sort of said well in those days is before the pre-transparency era the pre-millie-dowler era well, in those days it was a social event and we didn't talk about social events you know anything that was social was a sort of private event and number 10 didn't discuss it and so what you had this sort of off, if you like this sort of off the books on the side culture of sort of socialising and text messages, and that's where and that's how we're seeing sort of that's the real sort of warp and weft of government the
4: real emotional heart of government I think One prediction I would make after today is um what with rebecca's um text containing this line you know professionally we really are in this together i think we can now say that the we're all in it together phrase from dave and george is is done for good we're not going to hear that again no
2: dance so unsure was um Cameron of uh, the number of times he's met or was in touch with um, Rebecca Brooks. That we had this intervention from from Samantha Cameron, who was clearly uh, clearly watching, uh, uh, eagle eyed on TV. But he was he was a bit more sure of himself when it came to um, discussing. Um that the hows and wires of transferring responsibility for, for News Corp's bid for B Sky B from Vince Cable to, to Jeremy Hunt.
1: He certainly had a better afternoon, but it began terribly, as you say, with something that if the Daily Mail doesn't sort of seize on, uh, 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 I'd be really surprised, which is he sort of said, you know, having in the morning mean unable to remember. How many sort of times he weekended or whatever he did with Rebecca Brooks? Uh, 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 she had sort of rung him up or texted him or whatever, uh, 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 told him that they were in Oxfordshire only about sort of, I don't know half the time, and so he offered eventually the formulation. Uh, in sort of he would see Brooke, he would see Rebecca Brooks once every six weeks, roughly speaking, in his estimation. Uh, helped by his wife, and of course, Leveson made some dry and rather politically incorrect remark about the, the usefulness of wives in this context.
2: Drew lots uh, of oohs and ahs from the from the press did, room.
1: But above all, it. Just again, it made him look. It didn't really make him look in control. It made it, it reminded people how evasive he had been on the subject in, in the morning, and the fact they need to be bailed out by Sam seemed to be, uh, uh, you know, loss
4: a of bit of you know loss of prime ministerial touch. I would say. I think there's one specific thing we need to keep a, a real eye on as well, which is the difference between what Andy Coulson said and the difference between what David Cameron said in terms of the number of checks that there were in relation to um, Andy Coulson's appointment. He kind of gave a clear impression. He was asked a question. He said, oh, it's all fine, and Cameron took that on trust, and that was that, and they never spoke about it again. Um, whereas Cameron in Parliament, and I think also implied today, didn't he, Dan, that um, you know there was a, a more ongoing conversation so getting to the truth of that's going to be bad news for one party or the other one would think yeah
1: he said in the wake of um what 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 David cameron said today was in the in the wake of the guardian article and the following on um uh, the culture of the cms Culture media Sport committee inquiry he did ask for further assurances from andy colson uh, and he got them and he felt reassured by them. I, I think the question becomes, you know, who do we believe? Do we, you know, according to on, on the David Cameron narrative, he asked for assurances several times directly and indirectly. And on the Andy Coulson uh, narrative, he's only really asked once.
2: Andy Coulson has been one of the sort of um, the, the key figures running through, one of the themes running through the whole Leveson inquiry, as as has Jeremy Hunt. Now, a few weeks ago, when Michelle's uh, emails and texts were first revealed, Jeremy Hunt sort of uh, seemed to be fighting for his political life. But but now, Tom, is, is, is he more secure now? I mean, uh, who would have thought we'd get to this stage and he's t- still in office?
4: With these things, what happens is the Prime Minister has to decide how doggedly to stand behind someone. And he's decided to stand behind Jeremy Hunt very doggedly. Indeed, as soon as the press gallery gets a whiff that he might not be doing so, then the kind of whole thing develops its own dynamic and that's not happened i suspect that cameron's game um is um to have a reshuffle uh, next month i think he's always wanted to have a reshuffle in july 2012 as a kind of midpoint or uh, well not quite midpoint of the parliament, is avoided, despite a couple of embarrassing resignations and reshuffles around details like Vince Cable's responsibility for B-Sky-B, on the big picture, he's avoided a big overall government reshuffle so far. And so then he would have this opportunity to say, oh, I'm not sacking Jeremy Hunt, but didn't, there, didn't he look like the time would be right for him to go and give us his wisdom on the health service or the ministry of defense or whatever it is um and i think that that's that will be the escape route because one thing i really cannot imagine is this autumn that we have lord leveson handing over a report to jeremy hunt and then jeremy hunt going to the house of commons and going oh it turns out we're all too clubby with uh, the murdochs and um uh, no one's more upset about that than me and so now i'm going to put it right i mean it just couldn't happen could it it would just be um, we all know what a bear pit the Commons can be, and and, and that would be uh, volunteering himself to be bear bait.
2: But he might hang around long enough for the Olympics.
1: You'd think so. I think. I think. I think Jeremy Hunt has, for the moment, survived. Actually, despite an enormous amount, extraordinary amount of pressure, an extraordinary amount of revelations. Uh, I, I think the minister for Murdoch tag will not escape him while he's sort of culture secretary. But uh, but uh, as Tom was saying, uh, Cameron was absolutely dogged today and came up with all sorts of heroic formulations they'd produced. Uh, you know, he'd finally sort of, you know, he got Alex Allen, the Arbiter of the Ministerial Code, yesterday saying, nothing really to trouble me here, actually. <laughs> Labour's calls for me to intervene. It's all a waste of time. Uh, uh, today, he, pulled, he got some retrospective advice from the Treasury solicitor, top legal official, uh, to say, Jeremy Hunt would have been, knowing what we know now about what Jeremy Hunt thought about the sort of sky bid uh, uh, before he got the formal legal responsibility of adjudicating on it, knowing what we know now, even then it would have been fine, even then Jeremy was sort of perfectly, you know, on board. So, you know, has done everything he can to defend Hunt, I think, and, and for the moment, the minister survives. Uh,
2: and along with um, Hunt and Coulson, another key theme has been whether whether governments and whether political parties do deals with newspapers in return for their support. Dan, Cameron today was um, he said it was a nonsense that there was any kind of covert or overt deal with News International uh, um, regarding the BSKB bid uh, for their support ahead of the 2010 election, and clearly uh, rather different to what Gordon Brown suggested the day before.
1: He was incredibly anim- – Cameron was incredibly animated about this in the morning, and it was his sort of most lively patch, actually. We were saying, you know, that, you know there was no deal, and then he sort of enumerated some policies that the, um, that, that the government had pursued, which – uh you know, uh, you know, freezing the license B B C licence fee rather than I don't know privatising the BBC or something or or, or shutting it down it it, listed some policies which didn't go 100% News Corp's way he conveniently forgot of course he was in a coalition which meant he didn't quite have the freedom of action that he might have done but let's set that to one side Uh, uh, in that moment he sounded a bit like Tony Blair actually you said pretty much the same thing actually which is I may in terms I may have had this sort of social relationship with Rupert Murdoch and Rebecca Brooks and so on and so forth but uh, I didn't do them too many favours I kind of let them carry on but I didn't let them buy Man United and you know, and, and Cameron said, "Well, I sort of, you know, was quite happy for Ash's cricket to stay on to stay on Sky. There were good conservative reasons, whatever they may be, for <laughs> allowing that to occur. Um, so it's kind of fine as far as he went. To be fair, Cameron had been sort of handed a, uh, to a degree a gift, I think, which is Gordon Brown's evidence earlier in the week, where Brown did sort of talk about, you know, in terms there is a Murdoch conspiracy, and uh, uh, yeah, I suspect the truth lies somewhere in between the two positions. Uh, I think Gordon was pushing his." Argument a bit too a little bit too hard, uh, but I think on the other hand, uh, I think Cameron was way way too glib. I mean, this is a man who reinvented the policy over Ofcom overnight. Oh, we're going. to Ofcom's going to sort of, cease, you know, cease to exist. Uh, uh, you know, very James Murdoch-friendly policy, for example, in opposition. Uh, uh, so he's you know he was quite prepared to sort of do what was needed. I think to to keep the Murdoch vote, if you like, on side when it when he felt it mattered.
4: I mean, I have to say, I thought Gordon Brown's appearance was really. Dismal. um, And um, for his own reputation, I mean, um, not that I'm up on the detail of what he said and what was right and what wasn't. It was just a question of tone. People accept that politicians have to be a bit hypocritical you know they have to sort of sound a bit holier than thou and holier than they they really are sometimes and freed from the burdens of office we saw Tony Blair kind of bounce in raise an eyebrow and go you're Rupert Murdoch (laughs) yeah you know that was a bit the game we had to play kind of thing but Brown is incapable of doing that he's too proud and so he ends up making these statements like there's absolutely ridiculous that Um, I would ever have taken any policy advice from Rupert Murdoch on anything. I'm just another son of a Presbyterian minister, as as, as he had that Presbyterian background as well. And that's what brought us together. And that's what we talked about. And, you know, almost denying he was a politician still. And, uh, you know, with these two years of distance from Downing Street, I I wish he could have done better. And if he had, then I think um, David Cameron could have had a a, a rougher ride today. I think the more interesting evidence um, and certainly the less depressing evidence than Gordon Brown came from Nick Clegg and from uh, John Major, who um, maybe he's got, you know, there's extra years from office and maybe he's just not so proud. But both of them were pretty upfront about the fact that they'd had very, very clear pressure from the Murdochs to change policy on specific things. Major got this linkage from the Murdochs about, oh, you know, if you want us to back us in the 1997 election, then you really are going to have to rethink your Europe policy, which is Pretty extraordinary demand um, and um, Clegg through this advisor of his Norman lamb um, relayed this um, got this message back that you know the Lib Dems were going to be battered in the press by the dreadful um, uh, by a dreadful battery from the Murdoch press if, if they if they blocked the B Sky B bid well that's all quite serious stuff.
2: Yes, Tom, I'll stop you there. And let's, let's hear from uh, John Major himself, uh, giving evidence to the inquiry, uh, where he spoke out about the pressure he was put under by Rupert Murdoch um, ahead of the 1997 general election to change his party's policy on Europe.
3: Just before the 1997 election, it was suggested to me that I ought to try and make some effort to get closer to uh, the Murdoch press. And I agreed that I would invite uh, Mr Murdoch to dinner. And I did invite him to dinner. We had a dinner in February 1997. Uh, The dinner would have contained the usual amount of political gossip that things on these occasions tend to have. Then in the dinner, it became apparent in discussion that uh, Mr Murdoch said that he really didn't like our European policies This was no surprise to me, that he didn't like our European policies and uh, he wished me to change our European policies. If we couldn't change our European policies, his papers could not and would not support the Conservative government. As I recall, he used the word we when referring to his newspapers. Uh, He didn't make the usual nod towards editorial independence.
2: So Tom, yeah, that was that was the most explicit, the closest we've come, I think, in the inquiry to anyone actually accusing Rupert Murdoch of of deliberately trying to, uh, you know, secure favours from from politicians in return for support.
4: Yeah, and the interesting thing is, you know, here was a kind of, uh, you know, conservative but fairly middle of the road conservative kind of pragmatic he was on the losing side once on the winning side once and Rupert Murdoch was with him when he was winning and against him when he was losing but it still sounds like he was trying to influence policy unless anyone's trying to suggest that you know Sir John as he now is um, has a, a reason to lie about this I, I don't think he has with all those d- d- all those years of distance he didn't look like he was lying at all. A- awful lot
1: of major nostalgia actually I mean his evidence struck a completely different tone it was sort of like a bygone era uh, you know you know, Sir John Major told us he'd met with Rupert Murdoch on three occasions in the seven years he was Prime Minister. I mean, the contrast between, you know, David, with David Cameron flying out to Santorini or Tony Blair going to Hayman Island, or, you know, you know, the list goes on. Uh, uh, it's quite extraordinary. And that's, I mean, one forgets, so one almost forgot what his premiership was like, which was dogged, uh, uh, wasn't a very popular premiership since after Black Wednesday, it was dogged by an incredibly hostile and visceral media. And that sort of, and it was the reaction to that was what, you know, Blair and Brown and Alistair Campbell took on board, and that's the same playbook that Cameron and Osborne adopted. So uh, it was quite interesting seeing that generation. Uh, generationally. Uh, Major was also quite interesting why on the whole debate around the privacy law, which uh, uh, was widely opposed in the press at the time, they realised they couldn't get it through Parliament. It was sort of, if you like, an abject failure of a mission. Uh, uh, you know, look, look at looked from this distance. It suddenly sort of felt like, well, maybe it wasn't. You know, maybe it wasn't the world. You know, the world's worst idea, if it had been done in a way or set up in a way that would allow, given everyone equal redress, rather than just being a sort of a law for the rich or the powerful. Uh, uh, um, you know, it, it was quite interesting and in just seeing how they were completely at the mercy of all these sort of media forces. Although, you know, Major's evidence is so elegant, you wouldn't have believed
2: it. But Tom John Major said that uh, sadly, perhaps, so he he suggested that Kelvin Mackenzie's story that um, Major rang him up after Black Wednesday back in 1992 and. The then Sun Editor said he was going to pour a bucket of shit over Major's head in the following day's paper. John Major suggested that wasn't quite right, but I don't know I don't know if his evidence on that point was entirely convincing, do you think?
4: <laughs> I don't know what the form of words was, but he was clearly given some kind of warning that he was in for a load of trouble, I would have thought, because he was very soon in for a whole load of trouble. You know, it really didn't stop. All these, um, oh God, you forget their names now, these middle-ranking ministers for um, this or that who uh, like had affairs that had... Uh, been snapped and put in some drawer in the bottom of the, <laughs> of the a desk in the sun suddenly popped up week in week out it was um and uh so w- whether or not kelvin mckenzie said that he certainly did it
2: and john major put civil servants in charge of his press machine and said perhaps future governments might want to do the same thing but given his experience you're probably not going to happen
1: i think that's an, a pretty unrealistic sort of sentiment i mean i, I, I these things sort of ca- you know come and go but certainly my instinct But you know, politicians want to you know uh, employ people who are loyal to them, and will want one or two people around them, or, or a handful of political appointments, who they can rely on. Now, of course, optically. You know, once you get an Alistair to Campbell, then optically the next person who comes along, everyone wants to sort of say, oh, we well, better have a civil servant or, a, a, you know, a, a, an appointment which is deemed to be a bit more neutral, a bit more distant. But frankly, you, director of communications, whether they're sort of someone with a party background or not a party background, it's an incredibly important personal role. And that's someone who point, you know, reports to the prime minister or, you know, a particular minister if their role is to work for a minister. And you've got to have a, the, the right personal relationship there. I, I, of all the things to be worked up about, I think going. That going down that road is a is blind amount is, is
2: quite a blind alley and dan just finally on Levison this week where do we go next
1: uh, there's an interesting sort of debate is clearly emerging or sort of, sort of spectrum of views is emerging and uh, 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 you know nick clegg was was the one who said i think we need some sort of you know Leveson, some sort of Levison law if you want a better for, for want of a better term we're going to have to have to really give the sort of pcc plus whatever it's going to be called some real power we've got to compel people to join it that's going to need legislation and we're going to need to sort of recognize it and law as a kind of backstop power and I think that's a that's sort of one end of a debate which is populated at the other end by uh, George Osborne and Michael Gove who were sort of saying, uh, you know, Michael Gove made this sort of great sort of and dance about in favour of liberty uh, and we don't really need to do anything at all and Osborne was sort of similar, a bit more sort of softer but in sort of similar vein uh, and I think one of the issues that the judge has got to do is he's got to sort of find a work out a sort of a, a package of proposals that will be sort of politically acceptable all around he talked a lot about consensus the need for consensus this week um and that will deal with this difficult question of whether there's going to be statute or not uh um uh, uh there was some other there's one interesting outrider in this debate, which is Ed Miliband. I don't really say much about him. Ed Miliband was the one who sort of said there should be ownership limits uh, and in fact that Murdoch should News International was too big and that Murdoch should sell one of his papers, you know, the Sun all the times. Um and the judge actually sort of just sort of kind of sort of said, oh, I'm not a competition lawyer, this is too different." Well, I'm, immediately sort of almost part of that in the too difficult box, which is quite interesting. So, you know, Miliband is still wanting to be an outrider, sort of thinks there's still you know, we need more plurality in our media, and that Murdoch is, you know, needs to be sort of reined in even further. There's still votes in that, if you will. He may well be right. He's, after all, leading in the polls, although I'm sure for many reasons other than this. Uh, uh, the interesting question then is sort of where does Cameron sort of fit in all this? And uh, he, I think, not unreasonably, just gently positioned himself in the middle, uh, without making too much fuss about it. I think he's giving Leveson some space. He gently distanced himself from Michael Gove. Uh, uh, said he wasn't wild about the idea of a, a Leveson Law, but didn't rule out either. So you know he's done what I, I, I you know, a smart politician does, which is sort of you know, posi- you know position himself in the centre ground, wait for the debate to play out, and be slow. I think to offer a, a very firm view on his part, because if, a, if a, as he's prime minister after all, if he says something very firmly, we're, we're going in that direction.
2: Okay, Tom, Dan, thanks very much. And finally this week, some sports news. And uh, Dan has stayed with me. Um, Dan, very big deal. In fact, a £3 billion deal this week uh, for the Premier League live football rights. And and Sky got the lion's share as ever, but uh, a newcomer on the field of play.
1: Yeah, BT, extraordinary. I mean, really, really surprising deal for two reasons. Um, surprising because, you know, BT, a phone company less sort of uh, uh, bid and won some rather valuable rights actually and secondly just a sheer amount of money i mean telephone numbers literally i guess uh, uh being paid i mean it was the previous three-year deal was worth 1.7 billion uh that's the one that's still sort of live now as it were uh one more season to go with that with the espn as the other broadcaster uh once the new deal sort of kicks in in 2013 uh this huge step up uh, um uh to by 70 percent uh to three billion pounds a year and that's just for the sort of Although the most lucrative piece, that are British live TV rights. So people are now talking about a Premier League sort of media windfall of sort of £5 billion over the three year period uh, for the first time when you take in foreign rights and match of the day, highlights rights, all the rest of it. Uh, uh, and, you know, in, in, that will be an incredible sort of windfall for clubs It's gonna mean, you know, very rich players. I don't know on 350,000 pounds a week It's gonna mean I don't know a hundred million pound transfers, perhaps It also help some of these struggling or even heavily indebted clubs Man United get their flotation away um, And also a very interesting environment for consumers I think a bit back to the standard days BT's talking about having its own channel £10 a month probably as a starting point or maybe you sign up to BT Vision uh, they say they'll be available on Freeview and on Virgin on Sky um, uh, you know and finally they've got these sort of what's really interesting that BT have done is, is unlike Satanta who had a lot of I don't know uh, Wolves versus Stoke or Fulham versus QPR type games um, they've got some they got they've got 18 first picks so about oh. half of the season so, so that's that mean more means
2: man cities, more Man City more Man U's rather than
1: exactly they're going to have a high proportion of sort of yeah Man City's and Man U's you say and, and Liverpool and Chelsea and Arsenal and indeed and more importantly some of those games where they're playing each other so uh, it's 3
2: billion in total but who's paying what?
1: so Sky paying 760 million a year uh, uh, so for what
2: 116 games
1: 116 games so that's six an extraordinary 6.7 million pounds a game Sky were paying um, about 4.7 so it's gone up about two million pounds a game. So it's, for for two hours of television, it's The most expensive piece. Well, it already was the most expensive piece of television, but incredibly expensive. And BT, interesting, interestingly, paying not much less, six point six million uh, for a game, way up from the sort of I think two point three million was it, what ESPN were paying. So so traditionally the model was Sky paid a sort of you know a big price, a premium price, and then the sort of the last bidder sort of paid a cut rate just to kind of get some cut price matches, if you like, second tier Premier League games. Uh, you know, BT have just gone in big and sort of not bought a lot by number, 38 games they've bought.
2: But uh, Satanta, you know, came and went, ESPN were there for a couple of years, they picked up the Satanta rights, they've they've gone that way as well. What hope is there that, um, you know, BT aren't going to get go away with of Satanta, but what hope that, that they become a more serious player and a- well, it's very
1: interesting. Look, BT clearly won't go bust. This is a company that makes two and a half billion pounds uh, profit in a year, so they can well afford this. Although they talked about a hundred million pound um, short term profit hit uh, uh, when the contract starts, so uh, uh, so there's clearly some investment expense for BT, um, but it can well afford it. It's a bigger company than Sky. Sky's one point two billion pound operating profit, so twice the size in that sense. So. Um, so if you can afford to do it I think the hard part is That just having a few Premier League games Isn't much of a channel If they're going to have A sports channel Are they going to try And get some other rights Are they going to try And get sports More generally uh, Where does ESPN go Because it's sitting on Some uh, you know, England FA Cup Type rights um, And one or two other sports But it's now looking Like a bit of a sort of uh, sort of is it becoming sort of orphan broadcaster, or are they going to carry on? Uh, so, interesting dynamic here. I mean, BT are clearly going to be betting on. I mean, what you won't get is you won't get people who just buy the BT sports package in isolation because they just want some cut price football. That strategy's been tried and it's failed. What they're going to, what they're really doing is it's just about another offering for the for the for the fans, another offering for the person who just got to have every game.
2: Yeah, it's tempting to say that you know the loser is going to be the viewer because, you, as you say, you're not going to subscribe for 38 games. Uh, very few people, I imagine, are going to subscribe to BT only and not Sky when the ratio is 116 games against 38. So you already shell out for Sky, and if you want the whole lot, you have got to shell out for BT. But I guess that's the market.
1: I, I think that is the marketplace, and I think consumers, uh, you know, in an ideal world, uh, you know, Premier it'll League be football free. Will, it'll be on ITV. Yeah, in an ideal world, it'll digital. We'll call it. Yeah, we'll be on on, on free-to-air television, and we, no one have to pay for it. But look there is there is a, a well developed proven market that consumers understand uh, the people's willingness to pay for television pay for sports is far greater than as ever, was ever thought these companies are far bigger and more profitable than was than, than than was thought possible and as a result they can pay more for the rights i mean it's way, you know this is you know way beyond the level that you know itv could pay but any, any advertising generated so you know football has become a sort of trophy Asset for broadcasters, um, well, if it makes for a better league, um, so be it. Well,
2: we've done news. We've done the sport. uh, It's just the weather left. I I think it's going to rain. Um, Dan Sabah, thanks very much. My thanks again to Dan Sabah and Tom Clark, who you can hear on the Politics Weekly at guardian.co.uk. You can comment on everything or indeed anything you've heard today on our blog or our Facebook wall. Media Talk was produced by Matt Hill and I'm John Plunkett. Thanks for listening
0: great downloads go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio
2: guardian podcasts are partnered with
1: audible.co.uk for a free download be sure to check out guardian.co.uk slash audible
3: where guardian listeners can choose any audiobook for free see the page for more details